Adults, if you would like to stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 22, starting with verse 16. This is what the word says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things say, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you are keeping track, I was gone on the 10th. On the 17th, we had the kids Christmas. On 24th, I may have had two times to preach, but each time was supposed to be kind of a shorter service. So welcome back to normal service. This might be a three-hour sermon. I'm just kidding. But I am preaching on something I love to preach about. I'll be, I'll, let me prepare you. I love preaching on the book of Revelation because I feel like a great injustice has been done, this book of the Bible. Even mentioning the book of Revelation, people start getting, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that because there's been so much fear that has been driven in to this book. But there's a reason why I want to preach on this this morning. Because we are, we, if we look at the church calendar, we are moving out of the Advent season. But are we? Advent, I want to remind you, Advent comes from the Latin inventus, which means coming. That's what we celebrate during Christmas, is it's a commemoration of the saints of the Old Testament anticipating the Messiah, anticipating Emmanuel. They were told in, in Genesis that there was this woman named Eve. In fact, um, I said last week, I said, like, Merry Christmas, Eve. And, and, um, and one of our students said, how was your Christmas, Adam? That was pretty funny. Um, When they fell, God made a promise to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity, I'll make an enemy for you out of the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. So for believers in the Old Testament, when is the seed of the woman going to show up? Because we had had people, right? We had Noah, but Noah gets drunk and gets naked, so he can't be the seed of the woman, right? Okay, okay, we have Abraham. Abraham, not once, but twice tries to say his wife is his sister to save his own hide. He can't be the seed of the woman. Then to Abraham, he is told that the blessing is not to his seeds, but to his seed. So we have a seed of Abraham, a seed of the woman. Is it going to be Isaac? It doesn't seem like it's, it's Isaac at all. Certainly not Jacob. We see all the problems, even though he's called Israel. Is it Jacob's 12 sons? We've been going over Jacob's 12 sons. Does it sound like them who kill their neighbors? who sell their, their youngest son, their youngest brother into slavery. So where is this seed coming from? Maybe David, he's the first king of Israel who had a heart after God. I mean, Saul was the first king, but he was the first one who had a heart after God's own heart. David sins with Bathsheba, has her husband killed. 
He couldn't be. But in David, we have another covenant called the Davidic covenant. And this covenant said that there would be a king from the line of David. That covenant actually starts all the way back with Judah, but I'm not going to go with that right now. So who will be this king? The kingdom splits into two. In the northern kingdom, they never have one good king. So not there. Couldn't be the seed of the woman. Could not be the seed of Abraham. Could not be the king according to the line of David. So what about the southern kingdom who actually according to the line of David, they have a couple good kings, but not even one of them establishes a kingdom in which peace reigns forevermore, just like the prophets had promised. Then from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have 400 years. And in 400 years, some amazing things happen. Like for instance, the Maccabean revolt and a guy named Judas Maccabeus, which means the hammer, which is awesome name. That's what they celebrate during Hanukkah. Maybe he is, but no, he's never king. In fact, there's a dynasty after that called the Hasmonean dynasty. And it rules and reigns for a while, but they have civil war after civil war. And as Josephus, the historian says that we lost our liberty because two brothers couldn't get along. That doesn't sound like the seed of the woman. It doesn't sound like the seed of Abraham. It doesn't sound like a king in whose, whose peace would never end, that the government would be on his shoulders. So what we celebrate during the first advent is this anticipation. When is our deliverer going to be here? And then all of a sudden, Christmas day, Jesus Christ is born. And that is the end of Advent Christmas. But is it? Because Jesus is not only born, he grows up, he teaches, he dies, he's risen again. He ascends to the father and he says he is coming soon. We are in a second advent now. We live in the second advent, this anticipation for the soon return of Jesus Christ. We should be as excited for the return of Christ as a 10-year-old who can't sleep Christmas Eve because there's presents coming in the morning. How come so many people miss the first advent? You know, the magi, the wise men, they were following the star. They lose track of the star. So they go to Jerusalem and they tell the people there, we've seen his star in the east. Where is your Messiah going to be born? And they know, they know he's going to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. The Magi are telling them it's the time now, right now. Nobody shows up in Bethlehem. You would think, right? You're waiting for this Messiah. You're under the thumb of the Roman government. I want to move to Bethlehem because at some point in time in my life, maybe I'll get to see the Messiah. Only the wise men. Only the wise men, some shepherds, because an angel had told them. So many people miss the first advent. Unfortunately, many people are going to miss the second advent. And also terrible is the second, the first advent filled people with hope for the modern church. Thanks to so much teaching in one direction, the second advent fills them with dread instead of joy. And that's a problem. Jesus, Jesus, said, Jesus said he would come again, but how many are excited for that? How about you personally? When you think of the soon returning return of Christ, does it fill you with fear or joy? I think for many of us, we'd say it fills us with both, but we know very well it fills us with one or the other. Isaac Watts, the song, you've heard it before, Joy to the World. We sing it during Christmas all the time, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That is not about Christmas. That is not about the first advent. 
Actually, it wasn't even originally, it's about the second advent, but it really wasn't originally even about the second advent. He was actually trying to paraphrase Psalm 98 with English rhyme and meter, but he failed miserably because he gets to the part of Psalm 98 that talks about the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, and he just can't handle it. He's overcome with joy. And he just writes, he's writing in his poem. You ever think about that as people are, are being just encountering God? And such mundane things that they could be overwhelmed with joy. Joy took, takes over. Joy, not fear. And if you read in scripture, that was the attitude of the early church as well. When they thought of the, the soon return of Jesus Christ, it filled them with joy and hope and not fear. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Paul the Apostle. I love this part because it's just like a little aside, but it means it speaks so much. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I would love to hear somebody talk about the soon returning of Christ like that. The the, the night's almost gone, folks. The night's almost gone. We tend to think, we tend to think of the time before Christ really being the light. Then when Christ comes, that's when darkness, because it's judgment. No, we're in the dark lands. And the night is almost done. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. As I started putting together this sermon, I started uh, hearing, I started um, on my social media feeds, on my YouTube feed, started getting a lot of suggestions when it came to this very topic about the end times, about joy to the world. Now, I don't know if that is the, the Holy Spirit or if it was iPhone listening into my conversations and talking, but uh, I do love, it does seem that often the people of God are on the same page. We talk about end time stuff. The proper word for this is eschatology. For those of you who want to know that, if you talk about end times, you're talking about eschatology. It means the study of end things. So one pastor I caught a reel of, but I didn't catch his name, so I couldn't credit him with this. So I'll say I said it. Um, he said this, and I thought it was awesome. If your eschatology is not about Christ, it's an error. If the focus of our end times discussion is solely based on the Antichrist, about what's happening in Israel, about even the new heavens and the new earth, we're an error because John the Apostle, when he was given the revelation, said this was a revelation, not of end times, but of Jesus Christ. It's about the end times, but the primary focus, the star amongst all stars is Jesus Christ. If we aren't getting that, we're missing the boat. No wonder even mentioning the book of Revelation fills so many believers with dread instead of like Isaac Watts, it filled him with joy. When he thought of the soon return of Christ, he said, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. George P. Wood recently wrote about, about this on ag.org. FYI, we're an Assembly of God church. ag.org is the official website of the Assemblies of God. And so he wrote this article, and it was like last week, and I was like, well, that's awesome. I didn't expect that. And he was right about this very thing that I'm talking about this morning, that he was growing up in the 70s, and in the 70s, there was, a, there was an end times boom in, in eschatology, and I thought that was interesting because I never saw a thief in the night. I, was, I came to faith in the late 90s, early 2000s. So for me, it's left behind. If you're an older generation, for you, it's thief in the night. And he mentioned the song that was on that show in Thief in the Night. And it went, life was filled with guns and war. And everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. 
So to this, George P. Wood said, so much joy, so much for joy to the world, right? And he's right. Much of our end times discussion in the modern era seems to focus almost exclusively on the fear and pain it represents. Yet Isaac Watts was so excited for the soon return of Christ, he gives up the assignment he was trying to do and goes into a tirade on how glorious the day will be. It was the same with the early church. They understood pain and suffering, yes, but they had an expectation and a hope that far outweighed any fear. Real quick, I want to mention something else about Wood's article as he talked about how the pendulum has now swung the other way. Swung the other way, instead of looking at the soon returning return of Christ, we are looking at our best life now. While a constant meditation on fear, whether or not you'll be left behind, is a problem, we should be focused on whether, whether or not we are with Christ above all things. In the 90s, in fact, it would seem like that that was the message, not be reconciled to God. I mean, this is something I thought was always so crazy because if you're going to be left behind, that means you're not saved. And if you're not saved, if you die, you go to hell forever. So are we seriously thinking like, hell's not so bad, you don't want to endure the seven years of tribulation. We should be preaching to people, be reconciled to God. He is the star. He is the one that you need to know, Jesus Christ. All right. Um, the other extreme, however, is just as troubling, maybe if not more troubling. The sole focus on our best life now. Now that is, of course, a cheeky reference to Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. Have you seen, have you noticed, I know some of you are more savvy on social media than I am. That has been co-opted by the world. Talking about, I'm just living my best life now. And you justify whatever selfishness you want to do. How much you want to hurt somebody else. I'm just living my best life. I'm just leveling up, folks. It's been co-opted by the world. In fact, I saw this, uh, this vlog somebody was mentioning about this gal. She had um, uh, declawed her cat, and people were upset about that. I'm upset about that. Don't declaw your cats. Anyway, um, and uh, she's like, he's just living his best life. And I'm like, yeah, without his fingertips. But anyway, that's beside the point. I imagine the, I imagine the world likes that because it's a worldly concept. No expectation of the soon return of Christ. No idea about eternal things. Therefore, no joy either. So both miss the joy of the second coming of Christ. You either ignore it completely because you're like, I don't understand all that eschatology stuff. Or you're so obsessed with the fear and loathing of it that you miss the joy that the early church had. I am for your joy today. I am for your joy today. Joy to the world. A.W. Tozer said that Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and they sing them. Let's, let's make sure that that's not true of us. I'm not going to go over every word of joy to the world, but I am going to go over a couple of stanzas in the song. Uh, Emma, I know you're in the booth there. You can pull up the song if you want. Let's make sure we don't do that. Let's look at that first standard. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart um, receive her king. Let, um, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven, heaven, nature sing. I think this is probably the first verse is probably the reason why it gets confused as a Christmas hymn. Because that is true of the first advent. The king is coming into the world. 
It applies to the first advent, but, it's, but in, uh, for Isaac Watts, he was thinking of the second. We tend to not think of the second coming in these terms of joy to the world. We focus on the terrible day of the Lord and not so much of the great day of the Lord. The third verse really leans into the second coming aspect, which is no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. We know that Christ has come. He died. He's risen again. He is with the Father. But we also know that sorrows and sin do grow right now, right? All of us have lived through that. And more than that, he even says, what we got here in verse 2 about, um, yeah, thorns infest the ground. We are talking about the curse of sin. The joy of the second coming is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness will reign. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more curse. That at the end, nothing truly ends. It's one of the things C.S. Lewis said, that you've never met a mere mortal. Every person you've ever met will live forever, whether in heaven or in hell. They will be an immortal blessing or an immortal horror. Every person you've ever met is immortal. In the end, nothing ends. What a unique take. What a unique take on end times that it should inspire joy because the curse will be over. In the fourth stanza, fourth verse, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations proof. He rules the world with truth and grace. He is the king, but he's coming back to rule. And he will rule with both truth and grace. And I think it's the truth part that seems to fill kind of that fear because God is going to deal with all of the sin. And that'll either be Christ on the cross or it'll be on you in hell. One way or another, sin will be taken care of because he rules the world with truth, but he also rules with grace. And that's the cross. And makes the nations prove. What a clever guy Isaac Watts was. Not encourages the nations to prove. He makes the nations prove. They, every eye will see him. They will arraign against him. Um, hell, uh, forces from hell, hell, forces on earth, and they will all be as nothing before him. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. And for us as believers, wonders of his love. Because we are, we are not in ourselves, in and of ourselves, more righteous than any other person. That's grace. You don't deserve it. God gives it. And when we look at all the events of Revelation, don't focus solely on the judgment, but what the judgment means. It is about the glories and about the love of God and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. When Christ came the first time, it revealed that we were all enemies of God in our mind. It was judgment and grace because we had already been judged. He did not come in the world to judge the world, but by through him, we might have eternal life because everyone who does not believe in him already stands condemned. The judgment coming before, before the, came before the child was born, the son was given, grace by the actions of Christ. The second coming is when the bill finally comes due but so does the promise. 
That's the part, you know, it fills us with fear because the fear, because the bill comes due and he judges the nations, but the promise comes due as well. The seed of the, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of David. Revelation, so where in apocalyptic literature should I preach from today? I could probably pick anything and get the same kind of message because that was what the early church took in and it produced in them joy, unspeakable joy. There's Daniel, there's Matthew, there's Thessalonians. Of course, there is the book of the revelation of John the Apostle. I haven't preached for a while, so I'm just going to do it. I'm just kidding. No, I'm going to go to the very end. Actually, I found it very hard this week. I was going to do all of Revelation chapter 22. And I found that that would be a literally three-hour sermon easily. So I just picked the last few verses because they say it all. John the disciple, John the revelator, John the elder, the one who called himself John the beloved, he is the one given the final revelation of Jesus Christ. After he was boiled in oil and exiled to a penal colony, he has given a message to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This letter that God used him to write would be the hope of the early church. As John begins, began the letter, he tells them that it is about what it is about. It is about what is and what is to come. Much of, much of it would not happen in their day. They, like the saints of old, would die not seeing its full completion. However, like all scripture, it was useful. It was useful for teaching, rebuke, and training in righteousness. That's the great injustice I think is done to the book of Revelation. Because we want to go so much into our theories, we neglect treating it like the word of God, like it is. And to train people with it. To teach people to obey the commandments that we find in it. And to reveal to us the very nature of God and the love of Jesus Christ that's found there. Because we're too busy with our charts. We're too busy making sure, you know, we got the right kind of eschatology. And unfortunately, we miss Christ in that. We miss what Isaac Watts with the early church, what Paul the Apostle had, and it was joy when they read it. Like all scripture, it is useful for teaching, rebuke, and training in righteousness. You would think with the way most modern churches treat this letter, its primary purpose is to start debates about who the Antichrist is. Yeah, is it Obama? He just bought Netflix, right? That's not its primary purpose. Its primary purpose is about the Christ, not the Antichrist. I am, uh, we, are, we did a series on the book of Revelation a couple years ago. I am working on getting it all into a playlist that you can access, an audio playlist as well. I'm not going to do that for you this morning. It took me like a year and a half, two years. And the purpose behind it was not to go through all the charts now, we are a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture church, and I'm proud of that. But I wanted to take it in a direction I'd never heard it taken before. What if you just teach it like you would teach any other book of the Bible? Understanding that there's some of this that is a mystery until it comes to fruition. But what does it say in the meantime? What is it saying to us? And that was the purpose behind the Revelation study. So if you're thinking, okay, it's going to answer all my questions about the end times, it's not what the purpose of it. It was to reveal to you what its purpose was, which is Christ. So out of all, everything I could do, I thought, why don't I just skip to the end? Revelation chapter 22, 16 through 22, uh, 21, sorry. I decided that instead of preaching through all of Revelation today, I would just skip to the end. You're welcome. I could justly really preach about any bit of Revelation and come to the same point, which is joy. 
At the end of the Bible, we see joy to the world. The Lord is one, coming to reign, two, coming to satisfy, and three, he is coming soon. Number one, verse 16, he is coming to reign. Verse 16, I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So I was reading this week about how people who put together translations of the Bible in English, specifically those who use the words of Christ in red, have a very difficult time in this section. It's because it's not exactly clear if John is saying something, if Christ is speaking, if an angel is speaking or the church is speaking. So what you see in red is certainly the words of Christ, though there may be more. In chapter 22, Christ speaks at least four times. And three of those times he is telling the church he is coming soon. He is coming soon. He's coming soon to rule and to reign. He is already a king. It's important to note that Jesus being king is not a future event. It's an already event. The song, once again in the song, let earth receive her king. That is joy that's unspeakable for the person who has already bowed to the king. But it is terrible news for the, for the person, like in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 19, verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is giving a parable about a king who goes off to another land to get a kingdom. And the people of that land send a delegation, like I just read to you, and they tell him, we don't want this man to reign over us. This is why the day of the Lord is terrible as well as great. It is terrible for those who have not bowed the knee to the son of God, Jesus Christ. That's why in Psalm chapter one, towards the end, you have it saying, kiss the son, lest he become angry with you and dash you to pieces. It is great though for those who have, but for those who have not, for those who send the delegation, we do not want this man to reign over us. People say that today all the time. They say it directly, they say it indirectly. You know, it really, I don't know what a proper word for this. Disgusts me, terrifies me, that in the state capital of Iowa, there was a literal shrine to Satan himself. You know what that says? In our state capital as Iowans, we do not want this man to reign over us. And in verse 27, but for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It's not a future event. It's an already event. It's a king that has gone and has given his, has given his servants tasks to perform evangelism. That's what we do. Worship, praise and worship. Everything our hand finds to do, we do it as unto the Lord. That is what God has given us while he is gone. Well, that is what Christ has given us while he is away and the Holy Spirit is with us. But when he comes again, it'll be as we said, as we found here, but he is already king. In Philippians chapter two, the father has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. The king is coming back and he's coming back to reign. As we begin in verse 16, we see who the true author of revelation is and of all revelation is, including everything that's in the scripture. In verse 16, John is being told by Jesus himself that it is him. The origin of the prophecy is the testimony about himself. He sends his angels and his apostles and prophets to testify about him. 
This is the final invitation. Thus, the very, the very God of all inspiration and of all inspired men reiterates and reaffirms the highest authority of all that is herein written. Either then this book is nothing but a base and blasphemous forgery, unworthy of the slightest respect of men, and especially unworthy of its place in sacred canon, or it is one of the most directly inspired authoritative writings ever given. That is Sess, Joseph Sess in his book, Apocalypse Literature on the Book of Revelation. I, Jesus, Jesus Christ is speaking himself, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. He is the author of all scripture and specifically here in Revelation is telling us this. He is telling us this is to the churches. Specifically, this is to the seven churches addressed at the opening of this letter in Asia Minor. But generally, it is to all, to us. It's scripture. It's God-breathed. It's not optional. He identifies himself, Jesus. He says that he is both the, he is both the um, root, that he is the root and the descendant of David. He is the ancestor and the offspring of David. In Jesus' description of himself, we see how he is coming to reign. Because he talks about the king. He talks about the Davidic covenant. That there would be a king over Israel. And now we see over the entire earth. Remember the king of Israel. The, woman, the one who had a heart after God, David. Jesus says that he is both the ancestor, which is the root, and the offspring. That's the descendant of David. He is both the source of the life and blessing of David. And he is also the offspring of David, according to the promise of God the Father. He is the source, being the root of David, it speaks to his divinity. And being the offspring, it points to his humanity. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. There's mis teaching on this verse. Clear up super quick. Some, some people maintain this is Solomon, but Jesus said, but, but the Lord had told him when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your, I will raise up your offspring. David knew Solomon. It couldn't be Solomon. It was Jesus Christ. This promise is kept in Jesus Christ here. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The Lord is quoting from Isaiah his own quote. See, that's the thing about Revelation that we miss so much too, is that it is veiled in the language of the Old Testament. Very rarely do I hear when people preach on Revelation, bringing up all the allusions from the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ here in Revelation. He says he's the bright and morning star. What does Jesus mean that he is the bright and morning star? Well, we actually still use this metaphor of a star today. We talk about somebody being a star. We're talking about somebody who is exalted in our eyes, like a rock star. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall raise out of Israel. Historians believe that the reference to the morning star in the Old Testament is that of Venus, which is the last visible celestial body before the dawn, that when the night is most dark, a light shines in the darkness. He's coming to reign, joy to the world. The Savior reigns. He is also coming to satisfy. 
Verse 17 is a sermon all in and of itself, but don't worry. I'll try to end on time. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Augustine of um, Augustine, one of the early church fathers said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is from his book, Confessions. Joy to the world, the Lord is coming to satisfy. And we see here in verse 17, there's this great urging, this great invitation that the one who is thirsty, let him come, let him buy the waters. The problem is so many of us suffer from, and I should have looked on how to pronounce pronounce this word before I came here, adapsia. I got a doctor in the congregation who's probably shaking his head, not close. What it is, um, what, what that is, is the inability to understand that you are thirsty. You are in desperate need of water. You could be facing dehydration and you are still, because this is affecting you, still think, I'm fine, I'm okay. And then you dehydrate to death. We should desire him. We should desire him like the person dying of thirst in the desert. Truly, we do. The problem is that so many of us have this right here. We don't realize how thirsty we really are until we get to a spot where we have all the distractions of life and then we hear the word of God once again and it's like water to our souls. David, when he wrote in the psalm, as a deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. He wasn't talking about some self-help nonsense. He was talking about there's times in my life where I get so distracted to the things of this world and I feel so dry in my spirit that I need the waters of refreshing. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Have you been there? I've been there. I've been so distracted with things. I, a lot of times I get so distracted with the work of the Lord that I forget about the Lord himself. And all my Bible reading is Bible reading I'm doing for my next sermon. And then all of a sudden I, I, I sit down, I have nothing going on. I turn on my Bible app or I hear somebody else and it's like water in a dry land. I don't think I quite understood that so much as when I spent a summer in Las Vegas and I I was with a ministry. I wasn't gambling and stuff, so don't be making rumors. Um, We're helping somebody move. And I remember people constantly harping on me to drink water. Okay. If you don't want me to do something, harp on me about it because I won't do it out of spite. And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need any water. I'm from North Dakota. I'm strong. (laughs) And uh, I was fine one second. The next second, I was literally on the floor. My, 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 My head between my legs. It felt like the whole world was spinning. It hit that hard. And then when I drank water, it was so good. Oh my word, it was so good. Here's the state of every person. They are already dying of dehydration and they need this water, but they're not thirsty. Only in Christ, when we come to Christ, we realize how thirsty we are. Even as believers, as we get distracted by the things of this world, we forget that we have a fountain willing up to eternal life within us and we can come and drink. David entertains this when he says in the Psalms that as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. In verse 17, there's a bit of confusion right here about who is speaking and what is, what is meant by this. In verse 17, we see the spirit and the bride say, come. 
Is this an invitation to Christ asking for him to return? Or is this an invitation to those with a spiritual thirst to come to Jesus? Either sense is certainly true. For all who thirst, there is a fountain. Who receives this king, this king of glory? Watts said, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Who does this? Who receives the king? It's the one who hears. It's the one who thirsts and the one who desires. Him who thirsts. We say, uh, the, him who hears. That's our first right here. Let the one who hears say, come. They say to Christ, come. To the one who hears Christ, Christ says to them, come. But how can they come if they've not heard? How can they hear unless somebody tells them the words of Christ? And how can they tell others of the words of Christ if they are not sent? The last three, four sermons, I've talked about this at length, so I won't do it right now. But you are sent. You are all missionaries to tell others the word of Christ and to tell others that the one who hears, come. And the Holy Spirit does such a work in their heart to where they say to the Lord Christ, come. We have him who thirsts. There used to be a show on ABC called Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Now, Bill Maher has a show now, and I'm going to warn you about it. It's on HBO. There's a lot of cussing in it. In fact, every clip I see, they have to like constantly bleep. But on ABC, he had censors, so he wasn't allowed to be so vile. And so on ABC, um, he was on there, and he would typically have like four guests, and three of the guests would be militant atheists, and he'd have a token Christian on there. And one time I was watching this, and he was talking to the token Christian. This is after the Passion of the Christ had come out. And he's saying that he believed that Christians were really arrogant, that they, they understood something the rest of us don't, and they think that they're the only ones that are right, which I thought was really rich coming from Bill Maher because that's the way he comes across all the time. So he's saying this to this Christian lady, and she says to him, it's not arrogant for one beggar to tell another beggar where to find food. His response was so telling. He said, I'm not hungry. That's the problem. We tell people, how they have this God-shaped hole in their heart, and they do, but they will fill it with anything else. It's like a movie I watched, they talked about this guy, and he said, the problem with him is that there's a hole in him. And he can't fill it with enough women, booze, and murder to ever fill it. And we tell them Christ can fill this, but they would accept anything else until they become thirsty, until they realize how thirsty they truly are. They will never come. They will try to slake their thirst with all kinds of awfulness, with anything but the waters of eternal life. They won't know the joy, the life, and the love that their soul truly needs. But, John, but Jesus says in John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then him who desires, him who desires can come and buy without price. For him who desires, we see a very similar request statement, almost a quote from Isaiah 55.1. Once again, Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. Because Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 17, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. These waters are free. 
They cost Christ everything. And as one hymn writer said, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. This water is free. One might say, and I'm taking this from David Gusick here. One might say, I don't understand all Christian doctrine and theology. Come anyway, because it doesn't say, whoever understands, let him come and take the water of life freely. One might say, I can't repent the way I should. My heart is hard and I can't weep over my sin or feel bad over them as I should. Come anyway, because it doesn't say whoever feels, let him take the water of life freely. It's probably one of the biggest hindrances of people coming to Christ. Is they're like, I don't feel like I should. They base it on their feelings. It doesn't say if you feel like it, come. Come anyway. One might say, I don't know if I can live the Christian life the way I should. Come anyway, because it doesn't say, whoever can, let him take the water of life freely. You don't have to clean up your life first. Come to him. Here's the problem. Even in our Christian hearts, we start falling into sin. We think, okay, I can't come to church. People think I'm a hypocrite. I guess if you're sick, don't go to the doctor then. Get well before you go. What sense does this make? Come, take the waters of life freely. One might say, I don't know if I am worthy to live the Christian life. Come anyway, because it doesn't say, whoever is worthy, let him take the water of life freely. Charles Spurgeon focused on the word here, whosoever. He said, what a big word that is, whosoever. There is no standard There's no standard height here. It is of any height, of any size, little sinners, big sinners, black sinners, fair skinners, sinners, skinners, sinners, sinners, double dyed, old sinners, aggrieved sinners, sinners who have committed every crime in the whole catalog, whosoever. Joy to the world. The Lord has come to reign. He has come to satisfy you, dear believer, to satisfy our souls. He's also coming soon. Joy to the world, the Lord is coming soon. Jesus says at least three times in the last chapter that he is coming soon. The cynic will say, that was 2,000 years ago. Why are you still waiting? Obviously, this is not true. That has everything to do with our misunderstanding of what the Lord means by soon, which I'm going to explain in a bit, so you better keep listening. We have here first in verse 18 and 19, the, the warning not to add or take away. We have a specific prohibition about adding or taking away from this letter specifically, but generally that is true of the entire scriptures. We have a similar scripture to this in Deuteronomy, not to add or take away from the law. You know, one of the charges that Jesus laid at the Pharisees' feet, that they would either add on to the law of God, or they would try to nullify the word of God. They would try to nullify the law of God. See, people will use the Deuteronomy verse. They'll use the one in Revelation to say, not all of the scripture has this prohibition about adding or taking away. Because after all, there's more scripture after Deuteronomy. There is, but there's not more of God's law after Deuteronomy. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Not one jot or tittle from the word of God will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will pass away. And he would tell them that you are trying to nullify the word of God. That means trying to take away. And we still try to do this today. We try to make 
we try to make exceptions to what we know is right. We know it's right in our heart and right according to God's law. We try to bring up the ceremonial or the judicial law of God to try to nullify the moral law of God, or we just try to make other exceptions with it. It's a lot like George Orwell's book, The Animal Farm. I'm not going to go over every detail of it, but there's a Ten Commandments for animals. One of the Ten Commandments is animals cannot sleep in a bed. In the middle of the night, the pigs come out, and they take a, they take a red brush, and they add, with sheets. And they tell the other people, it's okay to sleep in beds, just not ones with sheets. It's all about sheets. We hear this today, right? All this trying to justify every sin under the book by trying to add in some piece of trivia or some piece that doesn't actually apply to the scripture. They also tried to add on to the word of God. They tried to add on not to the word of God, but to the law of God. See, it wasn't enough to keep the Sabbath day holy. You couldn't walk certain amount of ways. And they had a hundred other things that they tried to add on to God's law. The law is never added onto and the word and, and the, the Bible itself is never added onto because this is the last revelation, specific revelation we have of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit may speak to you, but it's not at the level of scripture at all. The Holy Spirit might prompt you, but it's not the level of scripture. He is saying nothing new, but he's encouraging us what he's already said. Do not add or take away. Wolvard said, what a solemn warning this is to critics who have tampered with the book and other portions of scripture. An arrogant self-confidence that they are equipped intellectually and spiritually to determine what is true and what is not true in the word of God. We see this. Instead of trusting the word of God to be a double-edged sword, they want to take a scalpel to it. And what we do when we do that, we make ourselves the judge instead of being judged. We decide, okay, this is true for me. This isn't true for me. We are saying, no, I'm God, not him. And I will then collect and try to make that. In fact, there, um, Peter himself in 2 Peter warned the people there, told, told them that people take the words of Paul and they twist them as they do all scripture. We, the Lord tells them if they do this, they will lose. They will either have the plagues added to them or they'll lose their part in the tree of life. The tree of life, if we'd been going through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you would know this, but it's in the new Jerusalem. But first it was in Eden. It represents salvation, blessing, and treasure in heaven. And we have here, what I think is very interesting is this prohibition, because I don't think many people think much of it at all because they don't want to deal with anything when it comes to revelation. So they don't care enough to try to add or take away from this book. I think in ways we do, we take away by trying to ignore it completely. We add to it because there are people who want to stand on doctrines that are not actually found in Revelation, but are in entertainment and, or in books and things like that. But I think in specifically people don't. But here's the thing. This is meant to be understood and obeyed. This warning seems interesting to me because it doesn't appear many want to add or take away. They just want to ignore or debate things that no one really knows about but God himself. The book's purpose isn't meant to be solely speculative and debated about. In verse 7 of chapter 22, we are told, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecies of this book. The blessing, this blessing reminds us that prophecy gives us a word to keep, not merely material for interesting discussions and debate. The main intent of this prophecy is to lead us to trust and obey God and apply his truth to the way we live just like the rest of scripture. 
So I, I said before, I'm going to mention what, in, what the Lord means by I'm coming soon. A lot of people will use this. Well, people, people have been saying that for 2,000 years. And, and what does soon mean? So soon here, a better translation for that for our modern American years would be suddenly. Once these things start taking place, it will happen quickly. And you look at the timeline of events. According to Daniel, it's seven years. Seven years. That's a whole lot happens in seven years. It almost seems unbelievable. I would say it almost seemed unbelievable until 2020. Because in 2020, the world changed quick. You know what I thought was just, it drove me insane with 2020. As things were beginning with the whole COVID virus and everything, me and my wife, we were walking, we were talking, and she's asking me what I thought the impact of this was going to be. I was like, really nothing, because I mean, we'll just 14 days to slow the spread and we'll get back to life and that won't be too long. We'll, we'll, have, some, we'll have some trials, getting back things back to normal. And Becca told me, and she was right, I was wrong. I think I had wishful thinking. She was more of a realist at the moment, is that this will be this age bracket's 9-11. And I think that's underselling it. I can imagine in seven years, everything taking place and it'll seem so quick. One thing to another, to another, to another, to another. And for the Christian though, the suddenly part of this is not the terrible things, but the joy of Christ coming into his kingdom. That, that when this happens, it'll be quick. In Daniel's prophecies, all these events happen in seven years then suddenly, suddenly joy. And that's where we have at the end here. The last verse in verse 21, sorry, second to last verse, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The heart of the believer who rightly understands all of this is even so come. Come Lord Jesus. It's an eager desire for joy. But do you really want Jesus to come? I believe this was in Spurgeon's devotion, morning by morning or evening by evening. I haven't been able to locate it, so I can't give proper reference, but it was one of the most challenging, convicting things when it comes to this for me personally. This is one of the things he said in there. He's like, if you want Jesus to come only when times are bad and when times are good, you don't want him to come, then you don't really want him to come at all. I read that and I'm like, Right here, that's me. I wish it wasn't. I have to have an act of the will to remember that the best of this life is not comparable with the joy to come. Because I think a lot of us, when things are going good, we don't, we don't want Jesus to come right now. Hold off for a second. Let me get married. Let me do these things. We start sounding like those disciples who told Jesus, I've got, I've got some new oxen. I need to, I need to test them out. Don't come now, things are going good. But when things are going bad, we're like, come Lord Jesus, we can't endure this any longer. It was so challenging to me because I had to think to my mind, it's like, do I want Jesus to come or do I just want to escape when things are bad? But hasn't he already given me his Holy Spirit to endure? I say this, but I guarantee you the next, when things are going, like this last summer, for instance, come Lord Jesus. Here's what's powerful. I remembered this while we were in Hawaii and I was standing on Cocoa Crater Trail, whatever. And I saw the sun coming up and, I'm, and I said, said in my heart, I said out loud, come Lord Jesus. Because as good as this is, it doesn't compare with you. It doesn't compare to the joy of you coming into your kingdom. It doesn't compare to the day when I shall see my Jesus face to face 
When all worries and all sorrows and even the thorns on the ground will cease to exist. This, it takes an act of will to look at this and say, come Lord Jesus. This is my heart's desire and I trust it's your heart's desire as well. That the best things on earth are not compared to the hope to come. So going back to the first advent of Christmas. Remember what it was like when you were 10? You couldn't even get to sleep. You're like, I know what's in that one long package. It's the Red Ryder BB gun. And I will not shoot out my eye like Ralphie. I will, every varmint in the neighborhood, it days are numbered. And you're like, you're just wide awake the whole night and you're so excited. Christmas morning's coming. The gifts are under the tree. It's just a matter of time. Instead, when it comes to the second coming, we're more like the adult who knows the bad news is coming tomorrow so he can't get to sleep because of all the fear and anxiety and worry. But we should be like the kid waiting for Christmas morning. We should be like the Old Testament saints. My deliverer is coming. He's coming soon. Dear ones, when we read Revelation, we should be like the kid who's so excited for Christmas morning, not awake all night with worry. Remember what it was like? Waiting for Christmas morning, that's the way our hearts should be in the second Christmas morning. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Worship team, can you come up at this time? When it comes to preaching, explanation of the word, expositing the word, it's primary importance, and then also to contextualize it into our time. And then to give a challenge. I really have just one challenge for you today, and it's joy. It's joy. I think sometimes we don't want to live joy. We don't want to feel joy because we feel like, no, I should be worried. I should be concerned. There's all these concerns in my life. And I think that we bleed that into revelation because we see all the things that are happening and we don't realize, no, it's about joy. We see at the end of this, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. And in verse 21, the grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. you understand how wonderful it is that you live in grace? You don't live according to the law of God because we've all failed the law of God. Every single one of us, we continue to do it. But we live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is surely coming soon. He is coming soon. And yes, it'll be a terrible day of the Lord for those who have not bowed the knee, but for those who have, it'll be a great day. So Dear one, if you are watching online, if you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, fall upon his mercies today. And every day is Christmas day for you then because he's Manuel, God with you. And if you are in Christ and you are overcome with weary, worry and anxiety, come to the living fountain. Come to the water without price. It's yours. It's your right. It's your birthright. It's your rebirth, right? He has caused living water to flow in you up to eternal life. And may the worries of this life fade compared to the joy of the one to come.